0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. This week, I sit down with David Farkas, Associate Director of User Experience at EPAM. We talk about user research, asking the right questions, and conscious confidence. Enjoy the episode. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'd love for you to start off by telling people a bit about how you made your way into design and when when did you know it was something you wanted to do? And uh, how you ended up where you are today?
1: Sure. So I'm one of those fortunate folks that I've always been involved in the arts in some way, shape, or form. Uh, my parents and family was all encouraging of literally drawing on the walls and setting things up and all in the house growing up. And I actually went to an art school for middle school and high school. So I've sort of always been on that trajectory in some some way or another. And when I applied, uh, I went to Carnegie Mellon for undergrad. I initially went for industrial design, thinking you know toy design and product design and things like that. And very quickly, I discovered human-computer interaction as a dual major, and I immediately gravitated towards that just because of all of the things happening around technology and embedded technology and everything like that. I sort of already saw then that that was sort of the way that careers were moving and everything was shifting. So it was a pretty natural progression in that way. And then when I graduated Carnegie Mellon, I started at PNC Bank as one of the first two designers, uh, from an interaction standpoint with them stuck around for about a year and a half or two years. And then I've been in the consulting game, uh, since
0: bouncing around. Awesome. Awesome. So tell me about, um, what you do at, and is it EPAM? Yes, Epam. Uh, and and what is EPAM? Because um, I was I was surprised to to learn how large it is.
1: Yeah. So EPAM is a uh, software development consultancy where a uh, little over twenty thousand people globally, uh, primarily a lot of lot of offshore development resources. And over the last few years, we've been growing and expanding in the UX and consulting space. So really broadening our reach uh, across North America and Europe to really provide that that business consulting. Anything from healthcare and finance applications, e-commerce, uh, business systems and service design, uh, that's that's really our, our focus um, from the North America perspective and then being full service being able to integrate with all of our development teams. and I, I haven't come across anything that we've designed or come up with in a process that we haven't been able to, to execute and implement on.
0: Awesome. So what do you do there?
1: So I'm an associate director of user experience. So working within the uh, broader user experience team, I uh, mentor and manage a few folks on our team. I lead individual projects of varying sizes. My, my personal focus is on the research side and sort of anything around uh, workshopping or design studio. Uh, there are other folks who are much more interested and engaged on the interaction design and sort of the nuances there. Uh, but my focus tends to be on the research and a lot of the workshop studio type of involvement.
0: Awesome. So you wrote the the book on well, one of the books um, on UX research, which just recently released, um, can you talk a little bit about why you decided to write it and what should readers expect to get from it?
1: Yeah, so a big part of writing the book was an opportunity to pay forward in a very abstract way. A lot of the mentoring and training I've received over the years, I would not have been able to write the book if it weren't for people taking me under their wings, either in project work or when i attending conferences and just having those conversations and it's always been something that I felt that if I could just take some of the the nuggets I've learned and pay it forward, that that would be a way. So the book hopefully achieves some of that. I think what we really tried doing, Brad and I tried doing most in the book, was to provide an honest representation of what research is. Very often people try to paint this very grandiose portrait of research is, you know, big and complex or research, you know, requires all of these extra efforts. And research is complicated and it does require effort and planning. But at the same time, anyone can really do it if you have the right mindset. So wanting to to break down some of the barriers and break down some of the perceptions around it and really just talk about research as a thing we do and not put it on an ivory tower.
0: Excellent. So, I mean, your your take on this is whether or not you're uh, whether or not you're a designer or in the product team, you think that everyone can do user research.
1: Yeah, I, I think everyone can do user research. I think everyone should be doing some form of research. The the best way to understand if your product or if your service is resonating with the customers is through some sort of observation. So regardless of your role within an organization, I think everyone should have some awareness of the research going on and at the very least be observing it, if not uh, directing and driving it themselves.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So One of the things that I read in your book um, was around sort of asking the right questions. And um, it's an interesting topic because I I don't quite understand. I'd like for you to share a little bit about why you think it's so hard when you're doing user research to figure out what the right questions are to ask. Can you talk a little bit about that and some common missteps that folks might make when working through that piece of user research?
1: Sure thing. So, I think there's two main areas people struggle when asking questions, especially in the context of research. I think the first way is they try to craft questions so that they can sound smart and really knowledgeable about the domain. And what we always have to remember when we're conducting research is this isn't about showing off my skills as an interviewer or a researcher, it's really about trying to learn something new. So there's this uncomfort in a lot of places and I felt it too and I still feel it depending on the project domain where I want to be able to go into a research session knowing everything I need to know to ask the smartest questions and really understand the domain. And that's, that's counter in a lot of ways to what research is because the whole reason we conduct research is because we don't know something. So I think the first challenge is trying to, to sound smart when conducting research when the whole point of conducting research is we're trying to fill a knowledge gap. I think the, the second challenge is probably a little bit bigger, and that's that when conducting research, you really want to elevate the participants. So it sort of um, com- comes second to uh, wanting to look smart. You can have to put that ego down and then really want to make sure that the, the participant, the person you're conducting research with, they're able to look and feel like a rock star. Uh, this is particularly hard when doing any type of product testing or product validation where the participant might feel frustrated about not being able to accomplish a task or anything else and really making sure that they know that uh, this is not about them. We're not about their skill sets. It's about their opinions. And putting them in the the best light possible is a really hard challenge, I think, that good researchers uh, struggle with but learn how to overcome and newer researchers really need to uh, practice hard for.
0: Interesting. It sounds like there's a good deal of uh, trust that needs to be established for that second point that you just made.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely, it's, and that's where we cover it in the book, and we always talk about it a lot, is the trust between the participant and the moderator needs to be there, and those soft skills, that small talk warming up, you can't just jump right into a research session, especially if it's something complicated like uh, finance or healthcare or any any of those uh, socially awkward or, or um, hot spot topics, you can't just jump right into it. You really need to build that relationship between the participant and yourself. And you also need to have that trust with yourself and your research team so that if you take a long way around to get to a question, everyone's comfortable that we will ultimately get to get to the area of inquiry that's interesting to us.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So talk to me a little bit about your approach to quantitative and qualitative research, because I feel as though there's a lot of conversation going on around one versus the other. Um, But I don't think you look at it that way.
1: No, it, it's definitely not a one or the other and a one against the other. The, they should always complement each other and, and be used to enhance each other. So I'm fortunate that we have a dedicated analytics team where whether it's Google Analytics or some other tool, they can pull up key metrics for us. And we always try to use the analytics to inform the qualitative research. And I think that's really the best way to do it. So when you come into a project at you know step one, Looking at the quantitative analytics, anything that exists there can start to inform the demographics of participants you want to speak with, any of the basic usage problems. And while quantitative doesn't explain the, the why or the motivations behind something, it can expose what is going on and then really help inform uh, inform the qualitative research and the, qu- and the line of questioning you ask there.
0: Excellent. Interesting. So I imagine that you're working in a pretty agile environment there. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about any advice you have for product teams that are working in a fast paced environment and are trying to, you know, figure out how do you conduct thorough user research when there are such time constraints?
1: So I I think there's a, a bit of a misconception that thorough means long time consuming and expensive and thorough really just means in my mind that it's ongoing. So I think the real the real lesson to be taken away of in any type of agile or lean environment is that any research is better than no research and start as small as you possibly need to. If that's guerrilla research taking out sketches to a to a coffee shop and having a conversation there, it gets the ball rolling, it gets the conversation starting. I I think there's a lot of risk involved in doing a guerrilla research like that as opposed to doing something a little more formal and properly sourcing your participants, but any research is better than no research and It can really happen also at any phase of the project. So there's another misconception often that research has to happen at the beginning. And if we miss the research, you know, uh, that ship has sailed. But really, we can do research at any time. And we should do research at any time when we're discovering the problem, defining the solution, validating the solution. And all of those things can happen very quickly and become part of a sprint cycle and part of our our design iterations.
0: Awesome. So beyond that misperception, what what are some of the other misperceptions of user research?
1: So I think one of the most common misconceptions is that you need to be a researcher to do research. And I've been on projects where business analysts, project managers, account managers, everyone has actually been on the research with me. And with a five or 10 minute conversation beforehand, they've been able to understand what our area of inquiry is, what some common practices or best practices are as far as researcher, moderator, note taker, participant dynamics are. And really just with a little bit of training, a little bit of preparation, anyone can really accomplish research and conduct research. And hopefully that's one of those areas where by breaking down the language, we were able to to really uh, promote and encourage the fact that anyone can can conduct research. That's great. So I think an, another uh, two misconceptions about research is that it's expensive and time-consuming pretty often. So again, the very often in our pre-sales or in our sales cycles, we hear that the cost of research is too high. We need to get right into the design. And it is true. Research does take time and research does take additional expense. But I think one of the biggest areas of uh, to counter that is to just have a conversation about the risk of not conducting research. So this is something pretty common when we think about implementation development, the idea of code debt and technical debt and not building something right the first time means that you have a lot of overhead moving down further into the life cycle of a project. And that exists on a user experience side as well. And the easiest way to diminish that user experience debt is to conduct research early, conduct research often, and while it might be time consuming upfront, or to plan for it or a little co- uh, more costly to plan for those things in advance, in the long term, it really helps uh, speed up the process, the design cycle, the development cycle, and answer a lot of questions that might get bogged down in conference rooms, trying to decide on different requirements.
0: Excellent. I mean, it seems strange to me that people would, not, would, would think that it's, it's not a good idea to do, to, to do user research, um, because how do you know what people want? unless you've actually reached out and done that or that homework. But I can understand the pressure of saying, well, we don't have time, let's jump right to design or implementation Too, you know, it was interesting when I was reading your book, I was surprised to see a chapter in your book on improv. And I'd love for you to talk about how uh, improv can help improve the practice of user research.
1: Yeah, So so this was one of my favorite chapters to write. Uh, I've actually been involved in improv in some way or another since, since my time at Carnegie Mellon. And I've always found ways to bring the activities of improv or the mindset of improv into the design studios that I participate in. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions about improv is that it's about being funny or telling jokes. And in reality, what improv is, is about storytelling. And with that lens on it, the storytelling really becomes the participant's story and the conversation between the researcher and the participant and how you can pull that story out. I might have a prompt or a thesis of what I want to get out of a research session, but I don't know how that conversation is going to go. So that's where a lot of the the ideas of improv come in, of not knowing how the conversation or how the narrative might evolve. Um, all of that evolves in, uh, or is a big part of what improv is from a storytelling perspective. There's there's also a lot of key lessons or rules or guidelines of improv and that I think translate into a design studio and a research environment really well. And two in particular are the idea of supporting the fellow players and sort of rolling with the punches. So again, we want the participant to look like the star. We want our moderator to be able to have a fluid conversation. We want the note taker to be able to have the best instance of recordings and note processing. So there's this element of being able to support everyone, whether it's through body language or small talk and just having that trusting environment that that we spoke of earlier. And then rolling with the punches. Technology fails. Participants sometimes aren't as engaged or forthcoming as you might want them to be. So just being able to, to shift with that conversation and really, really make the best out of any conversation or any research session as, as you can is really just something that the more I practice improv, the more I realize how things might change on the fly. It's a really good, comfortable state of mind to be in that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And we'll find a way over it.
0: That's great. Sorry, I was going to ask you, do you do you use this internally? Do you teach this internally within um, the company that you're at?
1: I do, but I don't call it improv or I very rarely call it improv. And that that's one of those great uh, <laughs> tricks to using it is no one wants to sit, um, whether you're on the consultant team or you're a client paying for it. No one wants to be told they're playing improv games or going to an improv mindset but with just simple language changes or uh, just framing it differently, it's, uh, it's a really good conversation to have. And it is something that I always try to, to instill in some way or another, either with my teams or during client workshops, we've sometimes played variations on improv games to warm up to start getting thinking a little bit more creatively or a little bit more nonlinearly.
0: Mm, it is interesting. I've only tried it once. It's quite uncomfortable the first time you try it. I will say that, um, but it—I it, can see how it opens your mind.
1: Yeah, it, it's definitely uncomfortable the first time, and for better or for worse, it is a strange, strange drug. Um, I'd like to think <laughs> of myself as a extroverted introvert or introverted extrovert, and the thirty seconds or minute or two when I'm running a scene, doing improv, or running a workshop, and I have that mindset—that's some of the most energizing time. And then I'll—I'll I'll be completely mentally drained afterwards. But there's something about the act of improv that's really invigorating in my
0: mind. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so what advice do you have for designers that are just entering the field? So I think the
1: biggest piece of advice I say is don't be afraid of the words. I don't know. Um, this is something I definitely struggled with when I was first starting out and I still, I still every now and then want to hold back on and other people are constantly nervous of saying, there's nothing wrong with not knowing the answer. That's, that's why we conduct research. It's why we go out in the field. It's why we look at analytics. And there's this idea that designers need to have all the answers, that we need to have all the solutions. But really, there's going to be areas we don't know about. If you've never worked in e-commerce or you've, you've never worked in finance, you might not know all of the terms or all of the processes or all of the vendors. And it's okay to ask someone else on your team. It's okay to ask the client what these things are. Especially early in the project, it shows you're interested. It shows you're engaged, and then you can fill that knowledge so that the next time you have a similar project, you have that much bigger of an understanding. So I'd say the the biggest thing is don't be afraid uh, to say I don't know and and ask for help in that sense. That's that's why we do research. It's it's what I love about research. It's the it's the fact that I'm allowed to not know about things.
0: That's great. That's that's great advice. I mean, I think a lot of people feel as though they should know what they don't know, but I feel as though um what you're saying is like it's okay to go in and sort of uh, th- there's more of an open discovery process.
1: Yeah, so there's the idea of the conscious competency matrix and it starts with actually being unconsciously incompetent. So it's the idea that you start not knowing what you don't know and then you move into knowing what you don't know, knowing what you know, and finally uh subconsciously knowing what you know. So it becomes ingrained in you. And that only happens through research. So the idea that you start not knowing what you don't know is, David, you're going to be doing this project on some large healthcare application. Okay, I don't know anything about healthcare. I don't know where to start. And that that's actually the first question of research. And then I can start to understand, okay, the project is about these areas of healthcare. And now I know I don't know about these three of the four areas. So let me explore into that. Then I ultimately learn about those areas and I, on a very conscious level, I can go and pull out of my memory bank the different pieces of knowledge. And then ultimately by the end of the project, presumably the knowledge is so ingrained in my brain that I don't have to think about what the answers are when people ask me about acronyms or workflow or process. It just becomes a natural part of my conversation and something I'm able to speak, speak uh, naturally on.
0: Awesome. That's interesting. So one final question for you, which is sort of an oddball question, but beyond your own work, what people or projects are um, do you find interesting or grabbing your attention these days?
1: So I've always been a fan of science fiction and fantasy, whether it's literature or film and TV. And more and more recently, I've been drawn to it for a totally different reason. So when I was younger, I always loved it for the story, build, uh, storytelling and sort of the world building. And from a science fiction perspective, the idea of this is what we can do with technology in the future. But in the last year or two, I've really found that some of the better stories in both of those genres really focus on painting a portrait of humanity mm. and just society and culture. And it's been really interesting looking at the time those pieces were written or filmed and how those relate to the time they were written. But also, uh, just with everything going on in the world around us, how those how those themes sort of all all are cyclical. So it's been really interesting uh, when taking a break from everything in, in the news and whatnot to to look in fiction and still see some some themes and commonalities in a much much safer environment.
0: Mm, predicting our future in a lot of ways,
1: for better or for worse. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. You can reach David on Twitter at DAFarkas8. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud. And be sure to leave a review while you're there.